I'm not pulling on my driveway. We all know what that means. It's time for another Drive to Work at Home Edition. So I'm using my home time to talk with people. So today I have Andrew Brown, and we're going to talk about Zendikar Rising. Hey, Andrew. How's it going, Mark? Okay, so I talk a lot about the very beginning of design, but today we're going to talk about the end of design. So um, talk all about play design. So, so you, you are in charge of play design. Yeah, I'm the technical lead of play design. So basically what that means is um, I'll make all of the final decisions on numbers, designs, uh, just to make sure that we're uh, making the, the best thing we can possibly make. Okay, so um, just also to be clear, I, I had Melissa on not super long ago, and she, we talked a lot about the casual end. You're the, more the competitive end of play design, correct? Uh, yeah, it's competitive, and it's also just limited balance as well. Um, so we, we also ensure that you know all the colors are relatively close together um, for limited as well, which is uh, kind of another dimension to sure. the work. Okay, so we're gonna use today. We're gonna use Zendikar Rising as our example of what we're gonna talk about. Um, sure. But I'm I'm hoping to use today as an example to, so people understand like all what play design does because there's a lot a lot a lot that play design does. So uh, I want to hit as much as we can of that today, at least in, that we can hit in half an hour. Okay, so Zendikar sure. Rising. I did the um, initial vision design. I handed it off to Eric Lauer. Um, mm -hmm. Did Eric hand it off or did, did Eric take it all the way through? Uh, it was kind of. Um... Eric started working a lot more on another project. Okay. And we were like, oh, well, I guess we should have somebody else be in charge. So um, I took over for about the last uh, two, two and a half months of uh, set design. Okay. So w when you took the file over, where were things? Where, where was Zendikar rising at the point where you first started working on it or you took it over at least? Uh, yeah. I mean, I'd, uh, I drafted it and, you know, thought about a lot of the... Um, packages of cards for a while but uh when eric handed over to me it was um roughly in about the shape you see it now maybe some numbers were different um maybe we had some rares that didn't show up but uh it was pretty close to the final product i would say it, would, it was like uh 70 to 75 percent done and okay so i just want to run through the, the the main things in the set and i think these were all there when you took over so for example mm -hmm. uh landfall got brought back it had the party mechanic there were the modal double face cards with the lands on the back. Mm -hmm. um, there was uh, the equipment attached. All that was there, right? Right. Yes, all of that was there. Okay. So a lot of of what play design doing is not determining what's in the set from a larger meta sense, but more in the the fine tuned granular sense. Correct. Right. Like um, we knew that we wanted five mythic uh, DFC lands that could come in untapped if you paid three life. So a lot of what play design did there was actually come up with the designs of what the spell side does. So for example, Ameria's call was the, we came up with, oh, sure, it's a white land, and on the other side, it's two angels that give your team indestructible. So we, we don't necessarily come up with a lot of the concepts, we just kind of fill in the blanks. Right, and... and and the other thing that, that people need to understand is um, when we talk about knobs, I think people really tend to think of numbers as knobs, like changing the mana cost, but there are actually a whole bunch of different knobs that we can change. Yeah. Um, there's, <laughs> yeah, one of the best things about magic design for me is that um, you can change the power level of, of a card by doing so many different things. Like, 
each color has so many different, you know, keywords. There are changing ETB effects to attack triggers, to dies triggers, to upkeep triggers, to end step triggers, where like you can really move around so many effects to different timings that um, it gets really interesting when you're trying to, you know, hit that really small landing strip of the right power level. Yeah, one of the, the big challenges, like one of the things that I, I find interesting is magic, like you have to cost things in whole numbers, right? And that, <laughs> yeah. like one of the, like there's a huge difference between, you know, one in a blue and two in a blue. Those are, there's a big gap there. And that I know one of the challenges for you guys is you're trying to really, especially on competitive cards, you're, you know, you're trying to really max out like, hey, you're getting everything you're paying for. It's trying to find mm -hmm. ways to fill in the gap because the mana, you know, there's only so much you can do with the mana. Like it, right. the increments are, are somewhat far apart in, in, in a fine tuning way. Yeah, definitely. Um, although I will say in um, unsets, I do love half mana a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Super fun. Um, but yeah, it, it's definitely one of the, the largest struggles for our group in terms of coming up with the right costs for the right effects. Um, Sometimes things just don't work out and we just have to kind of maybe move it higher up the curve than we want it to. And then sometimes things actually do work out and we get that super sweet power level spot. Okay, so let's take the lands, the rare lands as an example, since you brought them up. Sure. Okay, so you guys get the land. So like what what happens? How, how do you figure out what the right thing to do with the lands are? How do you figure that out? Um. So the first thing that we do generally is... We look what set design has given us, and we say, huh, is this the rate that we would want to try this out at in terms of, you know, playing it in um, in a constructed format? So we look at it, we'd say, okay, looks about right, maybe down a mana, maybe up a mana, and then we play test from there. Sometimes it, it would be like, oh, we look at the card, and we're like, oh, that rare is too similar to something that we already have we'll ask the set design team to redesign it to something else that doesn't overlap with a card we already like um, from something maybe two sets ago. So there's a lot of different outcomes that happen, but normally what would happen is we see the lands and we're like, okay, we'll try this maybe plus a power, and then we'll go through our normal process where we play it, iterate on it, maybe move some numbers around, and then uh, end up on the final card. And, um, I mean, I know the lands were tricky because, like, for example, they don't have a mana cost. And, right, right. Um, you know, at some level, um, the one thing that was neat about the, the MDFCs, the modal double-faced lands, um, mm -hmm. where you had a land on one side is that there's a lot of value. People underestimate the value of choice, right? right. That choice is really powerful. Um, and so the, the, the key to the lands for you guys was trying to figure out, like, well... We know with this, like, we, the land was always the same at some level. That's going to be uh, either it was a tap land for everything at uncommon and below, and then mm -hmm. it was untapped but pay three life. Oh, was it always pay three life? Was it ever? Do you guys try two life or four life? Uh, it was always three life. Um, we always went for three life, and we wanted the one thing that we wanted to make sure on the backsides is that they were bigger and splashier effects because the the lands below mythic were more like you know. Cheaper mana cost, less impactful cards. Uh, one of the one of the ways I like to think about balancing choice um, is, let's take a card like Cryptic Command. That's a card most people know. Mm -hmm. um, if you look at the modes of Cryptic Command, if we were to cost some of them individually, they would generally be about two mana. 
So essentially, Cryptic Command is a four-mana card because there are two two-mana modes stapled to it. So one of the heuristics we had for making some of the Strixhaven charms is we take the mana cost, let's say it's three mana, and then we would pick four things that we think are about costed at one and a half mana. <laughs> so real quickly, for my audience, just because they don't always know sure. the cards off the top of their head, Cryptic gotcha. Command is one blue, 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 so four mana, three which is blue, choose yep. to instant, choose two, counter target spell, return target permit to its owner's hand, tap all creatures your opponent's control, draw a card. Yep. And none of those, I mean, those are all, those effects are worth about how much? Yeah, about, about, uh, about two mana each. Counter spell is generally two and a half mana. Draw a card is generally one and a half mana. So that's the difference there. Mm -hmm. But uh, bounce and tap all your creatures. Both are about two mana. Um, so that's why, you know, I think the heuristics are good with Crypto Command in terms of all of them. Each of the mode costs two. Yeah, and it's interesting how... The other thing that I'm always fascinated with watching play design is how much you have to draft off what has happened before. Like how much... The, the knowledge you guys have is, well, we did thing A or thing B before, and this is kind of like that, and trying to use old things to figure out what new things are. Yeah, that's a huge part of our work. Um, it's really important to have like a large library uh, of cards in your head in terms of how they uh, were played in their time. Um, so, yeah, it is, uh, <laughs> it's definitely a lot of memorization, um, but... Uh, it's a lot of fun, too, because I get to remember the times that I was at my local store, like, drafting new Phyrexia, and then we make a card similar to that, and then it's like, oh, hey, I remember that card was about at that power level, and then I use my uh, reference point there to kind of make a, a quick judgment on what I think the power level would be. Okay, so I'm going to take a mechanic from the set, and then you're going to tell me what in the past you looked at to try to figure out how to make it work. Sure. Okay, so the party mechanic, for those that might not know it, um, it cared about, there were four different creature types. Uh, yeah. Warrior, wizard, um, cleric, and um, uh, uh, rogue. Rogue, And, yeah. okay, so it, it wanted you to have one of each of those. It was representing sort of like a, an adventuring party that, that you would see in games like Dungeon Dragons. Um, right, right, right. Okay, so we give you party. That, that's We've never quite done that before. So yeah. what do you look at to figure out how to make party work? Um, So the first thing I think about is it is requiring... It's a pretty difficult deck building um, quest to send a person on in terms of fitting in four different types that you're going to have at different times. Um, there really isn't a, a, a good one-for-one -one analog, but one of the things that um, I used to think about is... Uh, modern affinity <laughs> because that deck is generally comprised of three different things which is like your cheap things your mana producers and then your haymakers like arcbound ravager so in a sense i think that was the closest parallel to me in terms of thinking about the deck building is like juggling a bunch of different pieces together in my head in order to create something cohesive um so that's the first thing that I would think of. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, de developing party was definitely difficult because, um, you know, having one or two creatures in play reliably is already hard enough. And, you know, once you get up to four, it's like, well, geez, I don't know. <laughs> um, so 
it was really fun in terms of coming up. I think my favorite thing about making party cards was coming up with the the top end of the rewards. Like we get to write really crazy stuff um, for like having each of the types. Um, so I guess that would be my answer. <laughs> yeah. So one of the things that is interesting, because I work very much in the early end, you work on the later end and mm-hmm. we do interconnect. Um, one of the things, for example, is there's always a play designer um, usually Dan, on, on yep. my vision design teams. Um, and the whole reason to have that person there is to look ahead to all the work you guys do and, like, mm-hmm. catch problems before we get there. Like, you know, right. and um, we have check-ins, for example, during vision where we will come and your team will look at stuff and you'll look at all the mechanics, usually you'll play with it, and then we have a meeting where you guys go through and say, yeah, we think we can do this, th- this we're not sure of. Um, mm-hmm. And so... I think people sometimes think like there's there's no interaction between the parts, but there's actually a lot of interaction between yeah, the parts. Yeah, there, there's definitely a lot of check-ins, and we have to have a lot of uh, a lot of communication to make sure everybody's on the same page. And um, yeah, I think over the years our like cross-team communication has improved constantly. And uh, yeah, it's definitely fun to uh, draft a lot of the early sets because <laughs> some of the cards I look at it, I'm like, oh. <laughs> I wouldn't do that. <laughs> um, so it's a nice break from uh, my normal, uh, do I make this two or three? And then I see this five and I'm like, ooh, that should be a two. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> it's a lot of fun for sure. Okay. So, um, okay. So p- party, you, you, the other thing that I found interesting about your answer about party is, it's not that you look at something that works exactly the same. Like, your answer wasn't, let's go look at tribal. It was, right. how does this work in a meta sense? What else works like that? So that you can right. you can get a, a general sense of it. And um, I'm always intrigued. Like, part of my job is to throw new things into the game. Uh, and then your team is like, okay, how do we make sure that this is fun and fair and that, you know, this is balanced? Um, so in... Um, in Zendikar Rising, what what was the biggest challenge for you guys? You think in Zendikar Rising? Um, I I do think party was our biggest challenge. Um, like I was saying, just like when everybody gets to build their deck with any card they want, you know, keeping a lot of creatures around is really difficult. Um, so coming up with uh, the creatures and the rewards for party was, I think, probably the toughest part. Um. One of the things we did to kind of mitigate the difficulty of, you know, putting a bunch of different creature types in your deck is we would give a lot of the creatures spell effects so that you would be more happy to put them in your deck uh, so that they wouldn't have to take up a spell slot. And then another thing we did was I think we printed one rare that had every single party type. So it was kind of we called it the the party glue, the glue of the party. I think there were three of them, but only one was meant for constructed, right? Right, right, yeah. I think the, the green rare, the elf, I'm, I'm forgetting. Uh, yeah, yeah, Tajiru Paragon, yeah. That was the one elf that we uh, that we wanted to position for constructed. Um, funnily enough, too, that card gets uh, cards of its type, and it's also an elf, so we were also thinking about that card for Kaldheim Elves as well. So it was kind of serving uh, party and elves at the same time. So that, that's an interesting question. How much, when you're working on a particular set, do you have to think about the sets around it? Like, how much does that influence what you're doing? Oh, it, 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 it influences us a lot. Um, like, 
you know, a lot of the a lot of the set teams sometimes get a little siloed and all of the set leads are different people and they all like different cards. And sometimes they kind of come with, they come up with the same idea of like, Oh, I want to make a hasty four mana green creature. Right. But realistically um, for us, like we would only want one of those every, you know, three or four sets. So if there's like, if there's two super strong green hasty creatures, two sets in a row, we would say, okay, you know, you should probably move that one to maybe your next set or give it to another set lead because it would be too close together. And we want to make sure that there's enough variety at rare. Yeah. Something else I just realized, um, you and I are somewhat unique in R and D in that we actually see every premier set. Like I am on every single team yep. at, at the beginning of the product and you're, you you oversee every team at the end of the product. And so Correct. for most people in R&D, there's gaps. Like they don't work on every set. So they work on, you know, maybe they worked on Neon Dynasty, but they didn't touch Streets of New Campana. Um, but you and I actually have to look at every single set. At least all the premier sets. Yeah, yeah. I guess that is definitely exclusive to only us because you're there for every um exploratory team every vision team and i'm on the set team for every three months before um we lock it down so yeah i guess that's true that's really interesting i never thought about it that way so you you share my pain of having to remember every set (laughs) i i don't even call cards by their name anymore i just call them by the effect that i remember (laughs) Yeah, it is. The thing that's interesting is ma- Magic Once Upon a Time, like, back when we had blocks, I mean, we had sets, but, like, it was easier to think of the block as one cohesive thing. Mm-hmm. And now, like, oh, you know, it's just, it's, uh, it is amazing how many things we have to keep track of. I, I always, uh... Yeah. Especially, uh, one of the, <laughs> one of the days I dread every three months, it happens twice every three months, but all of the card names change in the in the file so as we're playing them you're you're just like oh i play this card and then i look at it and i'm like oh that's a different name so when we talk about it with it with, with everybody in the room as a team it's just like okay who, do we know the new card name okay let's call it that somebody calls it by the old name it gets it gets kind of confusing sometimes yeah one of my problems is sometimes i'll play stuff near the end of completion like i'll be in a playtest or something yeah. And I will play a card as I remember it being, not what it is. <laughs> oh, yeah. That that happens to everybody. Don't worry. Okay, so um, I'm going to talk a little bit more about uh, MDFCs. Because I, uh, I, it, it was something that I was, I was very excited by because it's a very cool concept. Um, but one of the things I knew when, I, when it first got presented is there's a lot of challenges to it. And so I want to talk a little bit about um, something brand new. Like, so MDS, I mean, we had double face cards obviously before it, but transforming right. double face cards are really a different animal than modal mm-hmm. double face cards. They really, I mean, from a play design standpoint, they're very different things in how they function. For um, sure. So when we introduced it, we were saying to you guys, okay, here's a brand new thing. You really haven't done this before. Uh, so how did you approach MDFCs? Um, so... I guess I'll start with the the pathway lands. Okay. Um, so uh, it's but, pretty. Let's explain with the, to the audience. The pathway lands are the ones in which right, yeah. they're dual lands. They they're they're you know green on one side, red on the other side, and so you can choose which right. to play it. But once you choose it, that's what it is. Yeah, it's um, it's very rare that we 
test a totally new dual land cycle just because they're very difficult to come up with. Mm. Um, but my favorite thing about the pathways is just like, I think they're just perfect, like <laughs> out of the gates. Like I, I, I love, I love the choice. I love that. I love the exact power level they they're at. And, um, I think totally it was an awesome home run and we didn't change a single thing about him. Um, so, uh, it's interesting early on, um, when I first pitched them to Aaron, like it was one of the very first things we ever came up with. Like we were making MBFCs in the very beginning. We're like, Oh, the lands, I'll do lands. Like it was one of the first things we came up with. And then right. there's a big conversation of, could they come and play untapped? That was a giant conversation because we, we, we try not to like make better than basic lands. And, you know, sort of like, is this just strictly better than a forest since you can make it a forest or you can make it, you know, and mm-hmm. we talked a lot about like, well, what if they don't have the basic land type? Like there's a lot of discussions and it's funny, like by the time it got to you, like we'd hash all those discussions out. Um, but I just remember a lot of them, like, you know, does it have to come like tap? Not, it could have basic land or not. And I, I think we finally settled on the basic land means something. And then that was enough to let us get away with coming completely untapped. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and yeah, for the, for the other, uh, MDFC lands, uh, I really enjoyed, um, developing a lot of those because it definitely allowed us to add more, um, I would say niche or narrow effects that you wouldn't put in your deck because it's on the back of a land. So like the cost of playing something more narrow isn't as high because you can just put it um, onto the battlefield as a land. So for play design, it really opened us up to put more unique effects onto cards instead of just, you know, kind of like the normal, just generic playable stuff we have to do. So it was really cool to kind of like think about, you know, what wouldn't players play in, in their everyday decks and staple that onto the lands. So that was a fun experience. Yeah, I talked about earlier of how the increment of mana causes problems at times, and you're, you're hitting a very interesting... Um, things that cost less than a mana, like things that aren't worth the mana. And yeah. it's funny, there's a lot of innovations. Like I, I just um, I wrote a whole article about charms, and like mm-hmm. charms came about in the first place because they're like, what do we do with all these effects that we they're not worth a mana? Like, well, what if three of them are on a card? Is that worth it? You know. Um, yeah. So it's fun. I always I get a big kick out of seeing like what we can do with okay, I have the freedom now to not worry about being a full mana. What what effects can I make? I, I enjoyed that a lot in the Zendikar. You know, the, the way that lands were made. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely it's really cool when you get more of that freedom in terms of you know choosing effects that you know you normally wouldn't put in your deck or aren't or aren't worth that mana cost so um it was definitely a fun puzzle to try and solve okay now we're the com so the common lands come and play tapped and they have this, some simple effect worth less than one man on the other side um and then the rare lands we talked about were they come and play or the mythic lands they come and play you pay three life and they have more the more powerful effects on the other side which were yeah. harder to make the commons or the mythics uh, definitely the mythics. Um, it's a lot harder to gauge. Well, like we have to assume we started with the assumption that people would play as many of these as possible, um, because the opportunity cost is lower. Um, so with that in mind, we had to essentially come up with effects that look very splashy, but, uh, don't actually have a ton of impact. Mm -hmm. Um, so, for example, the Amarius Call land that I talked about, which is uh, taps for white on one side, and you can pay three life tap to come and untap, 
And the other side is four triple white, create four quadruple white, sorry, make four, make two four four angels. Your creature, your non angels get indestructible until end of turn. Um, so we had to come up with things that looked mythic, but didn't actually have a ton of impact in terms of the game. So that last line of text, which is like your non angels get indestructible, is that add to like give it that extra boost while not actually having the punch. Yeah, that, that, and that's a very interesting thing of how you want things to have a certain feel, but yet be a certain power. And there always is right. a big there's a there's a big differential between how powerful things actually are and how they're perceived to be. And I know right. that's something you guys play around with a lot. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That's a <laughs> the the perception versus reality argument is a it's something that we have to deal with every day. Um, and you know, baseline is it's difficult. Like um, we always want our cards to feel rare. Like you know but sometimes they might feel more uncommon. Like, I think a good example is, let's just say, a 4-mana 7-7, right? Like, that's kind of rare, I guess. It's rare on size, um, but it doesn't have that, you know, pizzazz to it, other than it's just big. But let's say I had a 4-mana 6-6 with, like, can't be countered, damage can't be prevented. Uh, When it goes to your graveyard, put it on the bottom of your library, right? Like, all of those lines read cool, but don't have that much of an effect on the game. So, the 4-mana 6-6 with all that looks more appealing, but the 7-7 is actually way stronger. So, uh, there's a lot of uh, juggling between, like, what actually looks cool and what actually is powerful. So, um, okay, so we talked... uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about Landfall. since we're. uh, So, that's an example of... Oftentimes, especially when we do returns, we, we bring back mechanics. So yeah. what are the challenges of reusing a mechanic, a mechanic that you've already used before? Yeah, I think one of the main dangers we try to stay away from is uh, just basically copy-pasting what it did previously. Um, so one of the things we tried to really avoid with um, Landfall and Zendikar Rising was that it was all about aggression. Because when people think back to the old Zendikar, they think of Landfall, they think of plus two, plus two, they think of, you know, winning the game super fast. So what we tried to do is, you know, have some of that in green and red, but with our other Landfall cards, we tried to vary up the effects more. So it still felt like something that you were used to, but it had a different spin on it. Yeah, another challenge of bringing back mechanics is often we messed up with something before. We made a card that we probably shouldn't have made. But <laughs> when people think of the mechanic, they think of probably the most powerful card that had that mechanic, and right. we can't often bring that back. We can't repeat that necessarily. And how do you, how do you deal with that? Um, that's an interesting question, because I think one, one of the things we've been trying to do um, is kind of skirt the line and like give you a taste of what that old card was like, but not actually, um, you know be as overbearing as that previously was. So again, that's kind of the perception reality <laughs> thing. We want you to feel like you're doing the the bad thing again, but in reality, it's not actually that bad. So a taste without uh, by being quite... Yeah, that's, that's funny. That's interesting. Yeah. Okay, so I, I, I can see my desk here, so I'm not too far from work. Um, okay. So my, my last question for you is, of all the stuff you did in Zendikar Rising, 
-hmm. What are you, what are you, from a play design standpoint, the most proud of? Oh, this is, this is an easy one. Um, so basically, uh, at the end, nearing the end of every set, there's a thing called the contingency art wave where we get to ask for a new art piece a lot later than we would. Um, basically we have to rush one out, out the door. Um, so in play design, we were like, oh, we really want uh, a creature that can exile another creature until it leaves the battlefield. So Fiend Hunter or Banisher Priest. Um, and we wanted it to also lose abilities, um, which is, you know, kind of difficult. So the idea that we came up with was based on the token available that we had in the set, which was from one of the inscriptions that made an XX. So basically what we did is we merged the XX token into the white creature that could exile something, and then we got the card Skyclave Apparition, which ap which happened to be um, a uh, multi-format all-star, and we made it kind of like at the last second, and uh, I thought that was really sweet. Um, so Skyclave Apparition is a one white white 2-2 two, two core spirit when it enters the battlefield. Exile, target, non-land, non-token, permanent. You don't control with mana value four or less. When it leaves the battlefield, it's that exiled card's owner creates an XX where X is the mana value of the exiled card. So it was basically the last card we made, the last card out the door, the last art we made, and it turned out to be super popular. So uh, that would be my answer for most proud moment of Zendikar Rising. Yeah, one of the things that's also really interesting um is at the end of the process, so much is sort of, it's already, already in cement, like already is hardened, and that right. it's, like, right, you had to use token art that already existed. You had, like, you had to, um, and a lot of the interesting things to me is the problem solving where, like, on my end, when I have to solve a problem, hey, carte blanche, no one's done anything yet. I can, I can make sweeping changes, but when you guys make a change, it's like, well, here's the limitations we have to do, and, um, some of my favorite stories are back in the day when I did more development. Uh, these days I do a lot more just vision. But, um, like, I remember us having to, like, fix a card, but it was, it was locked in the collector number. So, like, <laughs> we had to name it and, you know, we had to redesign it. But here's the art and the name had to be in this little window. And stuff like that's always fun when you can pull that off. Yeah, it's definitely the most satisfying when you find that perfect solve. And it's uh, it's because it's from all these Frankenstein parts that you had access to. So, yeah, totally agree. So, anyway, uh, I want to thank you for joining us. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah. And like I said, the um, I, I hope the audience, one of the things I really want to sort of, the, one of the reasons I'm excited to have you on today is, um, I if you listen to my podcast, you hear me talk all the time about sort of the idea making, the, you know, the formation of things. And none of that would matter. None of that, like without the team downstream that makes it a reality, that turns it, that playtests it, that balances it. You know, um, I don't think I, I, I feel sometimes the audience doesn't realize how much work that is and how much of what they enjoy comes from all that work. And so I just wanted to thank you in that you, you make my sets look good. So I'm very happy to. <laughs> well, hey, th thank you. I mean, I, I, I definitely couldn't come up with some of the stuff that you come up with. So um, I think it's a, it's a good marriage of our talents. So anyway, with that, thank you very much. And guys, I can see my desk. So we all know what that means. It means it's the end of my drive to work. So instead of talking magic, it's time for me to be making magic. So th thank you for joining us, Andrew. Mm -hmm. And yep. uh, thanks, thanks a lot for being here. No problem. And for all you, I will see you next time. Bye-bye.